James 4, 1 through 10. What causes quarrels? What causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us, but he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the word of the Lord. Father, help us just to... Allow your spirit and your word to slice down past our behavior into the realm of our motives. Lord, would you be gracious to reveal to us all an idol of our own soul? And would you be kind, Lord, to help us? Would you open, would, would, you, would you take our hands that are so firmly holding on to that idol, and would you just open up our hands so that we can give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen. You cannot go two directions at once. In fact, if you watch sports, that's why, well, that's one of the reasons why you watch sports. It's all about using the momentum to your advantage. I mean, the, the whole idea of watching somebody do the super G, you just can't believe it. I mean, you yourself ski at your, your very fast pace to 40 miles per hour. You think you're flying and you watch the Olympics and they're cruising down the mountain and you're like, how in the world do they do that? I mean, that's martial arts. It's basketball, football, soccer, uh, Liverpool football club. My favorite club has a forward named, uh, forward named Mohamed Salah. He loves making people look silly like this man right here. I think his name is Kevin De Bruyne. Does anyone know that? He loves to juke, to pass, to throw, uh, put the ball through the legs of the defenders and then score a goal. He plays like a legend. And every time he jukes a defender, he's demonstrating that a person cannot go in two directions simultaneously. And that's the point of this text. Spiritually, you cannot go in two directions at once. And to take a phrase that probably James probably coined himself is the idea of, of double-mindedness. We see this in James 4 verse 8. He says, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
He, he uses that same phrase back in James 1, 8, double-minded, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And then in chapters 2 through 3, he just gives these illustrations of people that are trying to go in two directions at one time, and it just doesn't work. I mean, in, in chapter 3, he talks about a person who uses his mouth for cursing and to praise God. He says that doesn't work. He, he says in chapter 2, you judge people, but you do the same thing. He says that doesn't work. At the end of chapter 3, what he does is he says you can't have wisdom that's from above. And then, you know, parenthesis or quotes, wisdom from below, that doesn't work. He says if you have envy and strife, and uh, he goes, then what kind of wisdom is that? That wisdom is earthly, sensuous, sensual, and devilish. But the wisdom from above is holy, peaceable, and teachable. And what he begins to do is in, in getting to the heart, saying you cannot go in two directions at once, he uses something that all of us have. He uses our relational issues. He uses our relational problems. And he's basically saying this. He says, you have relational issues. You've got a heart problem. You, you've got an issue with somebody around you. you. You've got a problem in communication. Then you've probably got an idol. In fact, our proposition is our relational issues often reveal a rebellious heart opposed to God's will. However, God's grace is enough to give us a whole heart for him. And that's what we want. That's what we were just singing. That's at the core of, of being a Christian, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And so we're going to work through James 4, 1 through 10, and, and we're going to emphasize three main thoughts. And those are the problem of our divided heart, God's grace for our divided heart, and a prescription for our divided heart. So the problem of a divided heart is seen in verses 1 through 3. Our text says what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you. These outward manifestations, these outward manifestation of dividedness, wars. He, he says, he, he says so, so why is this? What, what causes this among you? Do you notice that he asks questions? In fact, he's got about, he's got about uh, well, no, he's got about 50 questions in, in the whole book of James. Well, why is that? Because questions demand a response. I mean, do you like coffee? Every one of you kind of nodded or you did not nod. Do you like pizza? Do you like sports? Do you like Liverpool? <laughs> you see, what happens is, is every single one of us, we, we ask the question, James asks us to ask the question and every single one of us respond. And the audience of James are people in the church that are fighting. He, he says, why are these fights among you, there were people that are contentious, unfaithful, worldly, proud. They're out of sorts with each other. Each other. There's wars and fighting and murders. And these double-minded people, they're full of bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every vile practice. And the question is, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? I mean, what's your normal response when you're in, in a fight? I mean, let's just take our children. How many of you have broken up a fight with children in the last week, raise your hand. And you ask the question, right? 
And it's like, who started it? What do they say? He did. That's what they do. They always do it like, he did. He started it. He did. It's his fault. They took my toy. They said this. But you know, we're not much different, are we? But just think about your workplace, and there's a little bit of a drama. There's a little bit of, there's, there, you know, there's the princess, and she's got drama, and then there's the, you know, it's just drama. It's just drama. And, and, and what do we do? We say things like, well, if they would just, why do they have, they have to say those things? Why are they doing those things? Everybody knows it's their fault. Everyone, including everyone, right? Everybody knows. However, we know that there's something deeper going on. We, we know that, well, that's why one author said about this text, why can't we just all get along? Why can't we just all get along? Because these surface manifestations are indication of what's going on internally. And so look, he asks another question. So what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? He says, well, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Your passions, your, your desires, you've got these somethings going on inside. You see, at salvation, the old man dies, what we were in Adam, and the new man lives, what we are in Christ, and yet the flesh lingers. Oh, oh sin no longer reigns. I mean, we've been set free from sin, and yet sin does, it, it doesn't reign, but it remains. And in Galatians 5, it says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. These are opposed one to the, other, to the other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. I mean, how many of you felt that even this morning? How many of you knew one desire of God that was opposed by the desire of the flesh? Okay, let's all raise our hand. How many of you actually didn't feel like getting up this morning? And I'm with you. I don't know what it was. When you look out and you see it's raining, you're like, back to bed. <laughs> we, we know what we ought to do, and yet there's something that whispers for us to do something different. And there's conflict. There's these desires internally, these motivations for dividedness. And what's the characteristic of these desires? Well, he uses three words. Notice in, in verse 1, he says that your passions... In verse 2, he says, you desire, and then he goes on, and he says, you covet. That word pa passion is <coughs> heat on it. It's a desire to have this craving for pleasure, some, some sensual indulgence or desire for earthly riches or desire. It's epithuma. It's to want it very much. And then the word covet, it's the idea where we eventually get our word jealousy or envy and you put it all together. It's this intense desire for some treasure, some pleasure outside of the time, the timing of God. Thanks. So, so what we have here is this lust for some pleasure. Now we need to understand something that pleasure's in and of themselves are not sinful. In fact, who made pleasure? Right, okay, that's not your question. Like, I'm not, I'm not trying to get you. Who made pleasure? Those are good things then, right? Like, how many of you are thankful that God made food? Okay, who's a foodie? Who's really a foodie? You are a foodie. You like, aren't you glad God put taste buds on our tongue? 
Seriously, aren't you glad that it's not just like blands, like just little bland marks, you know, like, like great, that, that food was boring. I love boring food. Aren't you glad for salties and sweets and sours and uh, umami, right? I mean, all those flavors that, that God gives us. I mean, I mean, I'm so thankful that we can pass the salt or we can grind the pepper or we can put a teaspoon of sugar. I love flavor, don't you? You see, it's not, it's not food that's sinful. It's too much food. God's given us, and I'm preaching this before Thanksgiving. Wow. <laughs> you see, God gives us food to enjoy. It's not food that's sinful. It's food taken at the wrong time, the right place, or the right amount. And how many of you are thankful for sleep, right? No nap, no zap. Did anyone nap this week? Raise your hand. I want to see who napped this week. Who's a napper? Who's going to nap this week? Raise your hand. Like, like 4 p.m. on Thursday. <laughs> Hook up the turkey IV. <laughs> Gone. You need to see it's not, it's not sleep that's sinful, but maybe sleep outside the right, the right way, the right time, or possessions. I mean, good gifts of God are friends or sport, or learning, or even things like order. I mean, I, order. I grew up with, with two older siblings. They were both female. They were four and five years older than me, and they always were adjusting my stuff. They wanted to make sure that my stuff was in the right place at the right time. Stop touching my stuff. You see... Um, a guy by the name of Tripp, he, he says even a, a good thing, a desire for a good thing becomes a bad thing when a des that desire becomes a ruling thing. I, I kind of condense it down. I like to say it this way. Even a good thing is a bad thing when it becomes the main thing. You see, what's going on is why, are, why is there these fights? Why are these, these problems around? Well, it's because I've got these desires internally. I want something. There's something I want very intensely, very deeply, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to get it. In, in fact, these desires become so much of a focus and so much of a repetitive thought process that I'm meditating on. And I, they're going, and, and I'm thinking they're going to bring satisfaction that they become an idol. They become a little G-God to me. Life works better if I get. Life works better if I have. Life works better if I enjoy. Life works better if this experience happens to me. That's why John Calvin said, the heart of man is an idle factory. Like we just make more and more idols. In fact, if you could remember one question from this message this morning, if you could take into this week one question, it would be this. What do you really want? Like, what do you really want when there's conflict, when there's a fight, when there's a battle? What do you really want? Because even a good thing can become a bad thing when it becomes the main thing. You see, it could be that it's just an out and outright just sinful thing that breaks God's law and you know that this is sinful. This breaks God's law and I want it and that's my idol. But it, more than likely, the vast majority in this uh, of us in this room, it's not that I'm wanting to go out and commit axe murder. But I may be angry because I want people's respect. I may be angry because I want to be right. 
I may be angry because I don't feel like I'm heard. I want to be needed. I want to be in control. I want things to be easy. I want people to think that I'm awesome. What's your idol? What do you want? How many of you, you've been down this road long enough, this isn't your first rodeo, and you know some of your idols. I mean, I'm not going to call you out so it's safe to raise your hand. This is a safe place. <laughs> How many of you would say, I know some of my own idols. I know what I really want. How many of you would say, I know my idols. How many of you want to know my idols? <laughs> you are morbid. <laughs> Seriously, somebody was like really serious, and then I asked, I said, how many want to know my idols? And they go, yeah. <laughs> as I think about my idols over and over and over, as I go through this, I've been through this text in a serious manner probably three or four times over, over 20 years. And you know what? I think, I think what I want is I want the, the maximum amount of public praise for the least amount of private effort. I hope the one that said, oh, that like you identified. I hope that was <laughs> out of identification and not just that I'm, I'm, I'm like hopeless. Oh, okay, thanks. So what's your idol? What do you want? Why can't we just all get along? Because we have idols. Because I want something. And you know what our idolatry produces? It produces frustration, conflict, and silence. In fact, he goes on James 4, 2, you desire and do not have what? So you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And then he goes on and says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Notice the lack of peace. And actually the presence of depression, anxiety, anger, and mood swings. This inward frustration, he, he, these couplets. He goes, you desire, do not have. You covet, cannot obtain. You ask and do not receive. Can you think of any Bible story of somebody that wanted something and then they got the something and then it didn't satisfy? But what about Amnon? What does Amnon want? He wants Tamar. He wants his half-sister. He wants to sleep with his half-sister. He sets up a circumstance. He then puts her in a, a very awkward position, and then eventually he rapes her. And then do you know what 2 Samuel 13, verse 15 says? That it says, with the same love that he had for her, now he hated her. It wasn't love. It was lust. And his feverish search for pleasure results in frustration. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. And what we begin to realize is that many of us with our idols, we begin to go down the road to the idol and we're just frustrated because what well, we're frustrated because we do not have. And then once we obtain, we're still not satisfied. You ever been there? We lust for this thing, but it doesn't satisfy. And then we finally get the thing, and it doesn't satisfy. Or even worse, sometimes we have competing desires. I mean, that's what my idol is, right? I want public praise. That's a lust. 
but I want to be privately lazy. That's a lust, and you can't have both of those at the same time. That's called super frustrated. So I've seen it happen before. I was at a, I, I spent many years working at a Christian camp and I'd have these staffers and there was a kid, he's just syrupy, sweet, spiritual. You ever met a syrupy, spiritual person before? You're just like, something ain't right. I mean, you, you know, you ever met a person that, that when they talk about God or Jesus, like they totally change their like, God, Jesus, like, like something's weird. They're just not talking normal anymore because it's spiritual now. Well, it comes out, he, he had a private porn addiction. And, well, you can't be, like, perceived as spiritual and have a porn addiction at the same time. Not only is this wrong, and not only is this wrong, but you're vexed because you can't have both at the same time. Well, what happens when we have a pantheon of idols? Any of you ever felt like the tube in the middle of the teen game tube tug? You run in and you grab this tube and you pull it and this person's pulling it this way and that person's pulling that way. Have you ever felt like you're, you've got so many idols that what happens is, is there's an angst. There's a frustration. The takeaway, idols do not satisfy for idols cannot satisfy. Frustration. Idols do not satisfy, for idols cannot satisfy. And that's why the inner frustration results in this relational conflict. And that's why James got, has us pegged. He says, why are you fighting? Well, aren't you fighting because of these desires? Because these desires, they just don't work. In fact, what happens is, is now, because of our desires, we use people. People become agents to get us our desires. Or, or people are walls in the way of our desires. I mean, it's like I use people or I thump people people. You see, rather than love and serve, we use people to get to our desires. We, I mean, have you ever seen like a, a, a couple and it's like puppy love and then somewhere it just gets like odd and weird and they're clingy and they're jealous and they're upset. It's because what was like a puppy love has now turned into an animal lust. She, he's giving up the emotional to get to the sexual and she's giving up the physical to get to the emotional. It's not love. They're using each other. That's why people become manipulative and controlling. That's why that's illustrated like through a charter member, you know, some like some wide sage in the church. And it's like the, 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 the new member comes in and this, this sage chartered member, I mean, this, this older saint, he, he's, like, he's like, hey, you want to come over? You want to you take the boat? I mean, you need, the, you need our truck. I mean, we got this Airbnb you can have for free. And he's not, he's not loving. He's just trying to get a voting block. He's just trying to get people on his team because he wants to be perceived as the real wise one. And, and he wants like, to be the one that whenever there's like a members meeting that somehow he says the, the really wise thing and everyone gives him Baptist applause. You know what Baptist applause is? I grew up in a fake tradition that you didn't clap in church, you just did Baptist applause. You know what Baptist applause was? It's like when somebody says something like really good and wise, you go, mmm. <laughs> yeah, we didn't clap. No, we didn't clap good. We didn't clap. We just, mmm. 
And so if you say something wise and all of a sudden the whole congregation goes collectively, I mean, if you got 75 to 90 percent, wow, you are spiritual. <laughs> Some of you actually did it. Thanks. I felt it. <laughs> Hit one of my idols. Thanks, guys. Oh, that's why he was given the gifts, because he really wanted something. He's just using this new member to get to his, mm. You ever use people? You ever want to be the wise one, so you make sure that you're just the gossip dispensary? You want to be the one in the know? You, you ever... You, 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 you ever just hurt people? Do you ever hurt the most weak because you want to be perceived as the strong? Rather than love and serve, we use people to get to our desires. Rather than love and serve, we destroy people to get to our desires. There's a chiasm. What that means is it kind of is like this endless cycle. You'll, you'll notice it in verse 1. There's fights and quarrels, 1A. And then 1B, they, they come from wrong, wrong desires. Well, then 2A, you've got these frustrated desires, which leads to what? More quarrels and fights. It's like this endless cycle. It just never Works. It's like you're dissatisfied in your heart, and so then you, you fight. And then when you fight, it doesn't quite satisfy. So, so then because you're not satisfied, you fight some more. You see, we defend our threatened idol. Like we quarrel to win. We win so we can control. And when we can't be in control, we kill. Verbally, mentally, or literally. I, I was another camp story. I came around, come around the corner. There's this like six foot eight guy, 15 years old, and he's crying. Like, dude, you okay? He goes, I don't know. I just, I just really made the staff mad. I go, what's what happened? He goes, well, we were playing volleyball, and I, I put the winning spike down, and we beat the counselors. I said, awesome. He goes, but one of the counselors just started yelling at me. Not so awesome. It's my role at this camp just to keep track of all the counselors. So I came around the corner, and that staffer saw me. I saw him. I mean, he just right away goes, mm, he knew. <laughs> I came up, I said, what, what happened? And, and he said it. He said it so perfectly. He just goes, life just works better when I win. <laughs> I guess we don't really need, need to get to the heart. <laughs> you see, the staffer was willing to, to kill to get to his idol. You see, our idolatry results in frustration, conflict, and silence. Our idolatry results in prayerlessness. You have not because you ask not. At the core, our prayerlessness reveals our lack of relationship with God. We, we want to be in control of our circumstance. We want to, that's why idolatry is so attractive because we make the idol. And that's what the psalmist says. It's, so, it's, so, it's like the psalmist almost like, you are so bizarre you go down into the forest, cut down a tree, and then fashion an idol, and then bow down to it. And, and, the, and the idolater's like, yes. Because who's God in idolatry? I am. Like, like the, whole, the whole rites of, of idolatry is when you have this Baal, you come and bring an, an, uh, a sacrifice. So since therefore I brought a sacrifice, this God is obligated to do what I said because I made this God out of stone or wood or metal or whatever else. And, and yet we think we can do that with God. Think again. 
And our prayerlessness probably reveals our idolatry. You see, we don't trust God to work. We'd rather be self-sufficient. We don't want to yield our desires to God. In fact, you know why we don't pray? Because we don't want God getting into our business. We like idols that we can just kind of offer something and run away. But if you get on your face before God, you're eventually going to have to join in Jesus and finish up the prayer that says, not my will, but thine be done. If you pray long enough, you're eventually going to have to say, search me, O God, know me, try me, see if there be any wicked way in me. Like, like, Lord, get down to the motive level. But some of us, we'd rather not do that. So we don't pray. Because if we pray, God's getting into our business. Or if we do pray, it's like this kind of this weird prayer where we're kind of like, uh, he says, you do, you, you, do not, you do not ask so you don't receive, or you do not have because you do not ask. But then he goes on and says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We actually are coming to the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm going to just pray this prayer that's contrary to your word because I really want it. Lord, I'm going to pray something that's, that's like against your character because I desire it. Lord, would you please heal them because it's just a real pain in the neck to serve. Lord, please give me that money because I never want to trust in you again. I'd, I'd love just to have like this perpetuating annuity. And then I don't even have to say, Lord, give us our daily, uh, our daily bread. So, Lord, if you could just bring me that big thing so I don't have to trust in you, that would just be some small thing. Thank you very much. We just don't get it, do we? A dissatisfied and divided heart is never at peace with God, self, or others. Who's an idolater? We need God's grace. You see, God's grace for a divided heart is found in verse 4 through 6. I'm so thankful God is not passive. I'm so thankful he's the initiator. I'm so thankful that our ability to love him is because he first loved us. His grace is evident in this passage. You see, God is, first of all, hostile toward our divided heart. He, he just launches in. I mean, James is the exhorter. I think I said there was 50 questions. I was wrong. There's 50 imperatives. I, I, I got that wrong. There's a lot of questions, but there's 50 imperatives. You see, what James does here is he just gets, he just goes for it. You ever, you ever had a doctor with absolutely zero bedside manner? You walk in and they're like, yeah, you're ill and you're going to die. So we're going to go ahead and give you this. Thanks. Bye. That's what James does. He asks a couple questions. So what's going on? Why have you got all these problems? Is it not because of this? You adulterous people. It almost sounds like it goes like zero to 100 in like 2.4 seconds. But do you know what he's doing? He's actually, he's actually revealing that when I'm an idolater, I'm actually breaking my covenant relationship with God. This isn't physical or sexual adultery he's talking about. This is spiritual adultery. And guess what? God is against it. And he's wanting us to understand you cannot love God and the world at the same time. I find that that many times when we have problems or needs and we don't really think that they're a big deal, when somebody tells us it's a big deal, we're like, "Uh uh-huh. Oh, okay, uh-huh, sure, uh-huh, yeah, okay, great. And do you know what God is doing? He's actually grabbing you by the ears, and he's looking you in the eyes, and he's saying, your idolatry is killing you. 
And he invokes Old Testament imagery. I mean, Hosea 2 says, For their mother has played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I'll go after my lovers who give me my bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink. No way. It's the husband that's supposed to be giving those things. And he's using that as a way for us to understand when I'm going to that idol for satisfaction, when I'm going to that idol for some sort of pleasure or treasure outside of God's time or God's way, I'm committing spiritual adultery. Because in the New Testament, we just hear that prior to salvation, I was separate from God. I was considered the enemy of God. And after salvation, now I'm considered one with Christ and friends with God. And yet the current reality is that some of us are more comfortable with the world and our idols than a transparent relationship with God and other Christians. Because I want something. Some Christians think it's possible to be intimate with their idol and have a relationship with God. Do you know that every time you bow down to your idol, you have a moment that's really impossible for you to enjoy God? You adulterous people. Do you not know? I mean, he's, he's stirring up the conscience with these questions. Do you not know? Verse 4, that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You see, what is the world? The world is that collective mindset of unregenerate people who are living under the controlled influence of Satan. It's really where they're purveyors of the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. They're just dispensing all things that distract us from God. It's just, it's like the, it's like the traveling salesman with his idols. You can have one for five and three for ten and just come on, get them. It, it, it's going to be a blast. And worldliness is used to describe a believer who's living like the unsaved. A worldly Christian is double-minded and is unstable. And this habitual, unfaithful action declares that one's loyalty to God has been compromised. I remember when the Lord just was stirring up my heart. I, I, well, I was, I was in Israel for a three-week class. It was a master's level class. And it was just hard. It was like we'd wake up at 7. We'd pound the sights. And then come back to the library, study, take tests. There was really, there's only like two real free days in the whole three weeks. It was just an intense class. And one of those days was at the conclusion. We got done at the, on the Mount of Olives and then the Garden of Gethsemane, Gethsemane um, about maybe two in the afternoon. And the teacher said, we're done for the day. And I just, I just kind of sat down there right, right, on this, uh, right in the Garden of Gethsemane. As I sat there, I just... Uh, I was just kind of processing all that we were learning, but for some reason, the Lord just began to bring up some of my own betrayals. I was meditating on, on Peter and John and Judas and, and the disciples' interaction, and, and the Lord was like, well, you're Judas, you're Peter, you're John, you're Thomas. I just remember just sitting there, and my hands are on bedrock. <laughs> you can't go deeper than bedrock. I mean, Jesus was here somewhere. And I'm just, I'm just thinking about my idols and how this text says to be friends with the world is enmity with God. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself the enemy of God. I've got a question. How many times would you allow somebody to cheat on you before you walked out the door? 
And yet, how many times do we cheat on God? And he is jealous for us. He says in the second half of verse 4, do you not know? And again, a question. Or, or do you suppose? Another question. It is to no purpose that the scripture says. He yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. You see this passage this passage is, is difficult in one sense because there's no Old Testament text that says this explicitly. Like wait, you go through the whole Old Testament and you, and you don't find he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us. But what you do see in the Old Testament is constant allusions to the jealousy of God. Did you know that it's totally right and proper for God to be jealous? Did you know that? Do you know why that's proper? Because as a Trinitarian God, he's totally satisfied in himself. And therefore, when he says, have no other gods before me, it's totally okay. God is fully satisfied within himself. And that's why he says, don't make graven images. Don't bow down to them nor serve them. Well, you finish the phrase. For I, the Lord thy God, am a what? It's totally appropriate for God to be jealous, that's why he says this, I'm the Lord of the hosts in Zechariah. I am jealous for Zion with a great jealousy, and I'm jealous for her with a great wrath. God is jealous for those that are his own. It's totally right for God to be jealous, and that's why some old timers talk of God as the hound of heaven. It's not disrespectful. It's, it's, it's God is on the scent of those that are his own. I, I love some of the songs that we were singing. The fact that I'm trying to run from God and he chases me. How many of you are thankful God chases you? I mean, this is like, this is like uh, oh, it's a dumb book. It's a stupid book. The Red Fern Grows. You read that? Man, I remember the first time I read where the red fern grows, 50 pages to go. You guys don't know what happens is this boy, he, he saves like $50 and buys these two red bone hounds. And he calls it Little Ann and Old Dan. And these guys are the best coon hounds. And they get on the scent of a raccoon and they don't let go. I mean, like, like Old Dan, he's like big and kind of boisterous and, and courageous. But Little Ann, she's smart and they work as a team. I mean, you're so into this story. I mean, it's an oh, it's a dumb book. <laughs> I remember I, I, back in the days of cassettes, I got, I got the cassette. And I was listening to it from Cracker Barrel. I got it from Cracker Barrel. You bring the next Cracker Barrel. And then I'm listening to the story. Christy's right next to me. And, and then I'm looking out the window over here about 50 pages ago. I'm looking over the window. I'm just got to look over here right now. Yeah, I'm going to look over here. And Christy's like, what's going on over there? <laughs> you crying? I'm not crying. Allergies. <laughs> I love giving this book to my kids. <laughs> Sneaking in about 50 pages to go. Watching him cry, <laughs> laughing. Aren't you glad that God goes after us? The hound of heaven. How many idols did you go after this week? And aren't you glad he's jealous? That's what it says. It's his grace. He's actually against you. He's opposed you. He's like, no way, you adulterer. No way. We deserve him walking out of the door of our life. And yet he chases after us. 
And what we begin to realize is that it's actually so that he can give us his grace. You know, God is gracious to work in us a whole heart. Verse 6 but he gives more grace. God's opposed the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He gives more grace. This more grace. It's more than just amount. It's not just like I, I got two tablespoons of idolatry and then God gets like a pint of his grace. No, it's, it's more than amount. It's actually of a whole different kind, a whole different substance. I'm telling you, when you are in the midst of your idolatry, you don't feel like you can even get out of it. I need something more. I need something greater. It's like you standing under the uh, standing under a 1.2 million pound Airbus 380, and you're trying to lift it. You're not going to be able to lift it, but jump in the cockpit and and put those throttles forward. And and when that plane reaches about 180 miles per hour, guess what? There's a greater law than the law of gravity. That gravity is going to keep that 1.2 million pounds closely anchored to the earth. But there's a higher law, and it's this combination. We don't even know how to explain it, but somehow with Newton's laws, there's this law. If you'll let me just call it a law of flight, somehow this 1.2 million pound plane flies. Your idolatry is so bad. And somehow through God's grace, we love Jesus. And somehow, because of God's grace, we actually love him more. That's why he said where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. But look what he does. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You see, going back to this exhortational style of James, he's just like, I'm not giving you a free pass. Like, it's not cheap grace. He's like, yes, you're an idolater. And yes, God's grace is enough, but I... I want to, your grace is connected to to humility. And then this is where we see the third point, God's prescription for our divided heart. You see, every demand that God makes is met with his all-sufficient grace. He has enough grace to enable every believer. But look what he says in verse 6. He gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to who? You say, he gives grace to who? No, say it really loud. He gives grace to who? And so the next few verses are like this little pamphlet that he gives us. He says, you want to have grace? You want to have grace? Then humble yourself. You want to know how to humble yourself? Here's this little pamphlet. And there's like a, there's three parts, but there's like an introduction and a conclusion. And the introduction we see in verse 7, he, he, you, you open up. You're like, I want grace. Well, then humble yourself. Well, this little, this little uh, humility handbook, and, and you look at it, and you open it up, and it says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God, verse 7. You see, where there's no submission, there's no humility. Submission to God is a test of our humility. Submission is an act of the will. It's like speaking with Jesus when he said, not my will, but thine be done. It's where you're actually saying, Jesus, you're in control of my life. And my desires, I want, I want them to come under your desires. You see, remember idolatry is this. I have a desire. Like it's, it's, like, it's like I have a desire and it's going this way. But then God has a desire, right? And then, and then they meet because they're opposed to one another and there's conflict. It was a light bulb moment for me when I was thinking about one of my idols. It was a light bulb moment to think that God will never submit to me. I want 
Life works better when I want. And God has a desire. Conflict. He will never submit to you. So, so you want God's grace? Well, why don't you volitionally? Why don't you volitionally bow your heart to God and say, God, it's never your will that I. God, it's never your will that I'm satisfied with. It's never your will that I think about. It's never your will that I say. It's never your will that I go. You see, submission understands that everything is from the good hand of God. Are you submitted to God in your trials, your hardships, your temptations, not having what you think you want, not having the possession or the gifts? Can you say that God is a loving God? Can you say with Baxter, what you give me is okay? What you wilt, where you wilt, when you wilt. You see that little handbook, the introduction is submission to God, but the first part is declare which side you're on. He, he goes on and says, resist the devil, he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Resist the devil, it means be aware that the devil's attacks are taking place. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around. Be ready, put on the whole armor of God. I mean, I, I wish I could tell you that you simply just like, like come to a service like this, you identify your idol, and you just say some words like submission, and you won't be tempted. I mean, how many of you wish that you were never tempted again, right? I wish we could just start passing out the pills. Like, like I'll take it. Is it the blue or the red? I don't know. I'll take the right one. Just tell me. And what does he say? He says, no, the devil's going to come back to you and come back to you and come back to you. But be encouraged. Don't just be aware. Don't just be ready, but be encouraged. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Temptations, they come in sets, don't they? Like fight when there's fight and rest when God gives you rest. He goes on and says, resist the devil, but then draw near to God and he will draw near to you. It's not just enough to fight Satan, but you actually have to enjoy God. We can come close to the Holy One because of the cleansing blood of Jesus. You see, aren't you so thankful when we turn towards God, he walks. When we walk, he runs. When we run, he flies. Draw near to God. Enjoy him. Spend extra time with him. Set aside time for him. Enjoy God, do you know people in the New Testament that wanted to find Jesus did whatever it took? I mean, have you ever come to a place where you saw your sin and the depravity of it that you just said, God, I'll do whatever it takes to draw near to you. And that's what people in the New Testament did. I mean, there's people who climbed a tree. They, they stayed at a meeting and they met late at night. They touched his garments. They, they snuck through crowds. They ripped up roofs. They wept at his feet. They traveled for months. They shouted over a crowd. You see, a person who wants God will do whatever it takes to find him. I love the Tozier quote. I'll quote this in some sermons sometimes. He says, you may want God, but you want something else more, and you get what you want most. You may want God, but you want something else more, and you'll get what you want most. But then deal with your sin completely. You see, the, th the second part, he says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. You see, cleaning up your sinful actions, it's just like whatever way that you're sinning, just deal with it. Like, just 
just as a Puritan said, crush the tunnel. How many of you have ever confessed a sin, but you had a little secret tunnel back? Crush the tunnel. I had this uh, student come up to me and he goes, hey, uh, do you think maybe you could, uh, well, I've been really struggling with what I look at on my phone and I just, well, you know, and could you maybe, uh, could you keep me accountable? I just, you know, maybe you keep me accountable. And I just looked at him and I said, no. He's kind of like, huh? I said, seriously, I mean, how many other people have you asked? And he goes like, like, I don't know, five, six, seven. I said, exactly. Like, so I'm not going to be eight. I said, why don't you just throw away your phone? Seriously, he said, I can't do that. He goes, it cost me 700 bucks. I said, exactly. But I wonder if Jesus would say it's probably better to go to heaven with no phone than to go to hell with two. I think that sometimes we play with idols. We don't like the consequence, but we lust for their affection. Like crush it, like crush the tunnel. Go get a brother or sister and say, hey, I need your help. Like go talk to somebody and say, like, like, like really help me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to eliminate this. Help me with my speech. Help me memorize this word. Help me read my Bible. Help me pray. Help me just help. Like I want to clean up my sinful actions. But then, then don't just stop at behavior, but work down to purify your hearts, you double-minded. I mean, why do you want what you want? Like, like we all do the... Well, some of us have the same outward expression, but motivated from different idolatry. Figure out what you want. Some of us, we do what we do because we just want comfort. Some of us, we do what we do because we want to be in control. Some of us do what we do because we want, we want there to be a, a life of peace. What do you want? And then let God work true repentance. Like be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. We, we, live, in a, we live in a culture that treats sin too nicely. We, we live in a culture of oopses. We live in a culture of, ah, if you will let me say it, shocks. <laughs> no, Jesus died for our idols. Jesus died for our thoughts. He died for our words. He died for our looks. He died for us. Stop laughing at sin. Be wretched. Stop finding joy in sin. Mourn. Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. And then the conclusion, right? This little pamphlet, right? We, we want grace. Well, how do we get grace? We, we get grace by being humble. Well, how do we get, be humble? He, he, that pamphlet. It's like submit. And, and, then, and then he tells us, declare which side you're on. And then he says, deal with your sin and determine up to repentance. But he just closes that little booklet. And he says, it's really a humility before God. You see, what happens when these commands are obeyed? It's, a, it's really a deep sense of humility before God. I mean, if I come to the Lord and I say, God, I submit, volitionally, I submit. You do not want me to have that. God, I just confess my sin. I resist the devil. I, and, and I actually draw near to God. And internally, I just identify how am I interacting with that sin. And I eliminate it. And I get honest about what's going on internally. He says, that's how you get humility. That's how you're humble. Practically, when you just work yourself through these things, that's how you humble yourself before the Lord. And guess what? He says, he will exalt you. You see, that's grace. You, you come to the Lord this afternoon and say, God, I hate people. I hate that person. It's not your will I hate them. I say evil things. It's 
because I just want them to like me, and they don't like me. I hate them. And you humble yourself, and God gives you grace. It's like the couple who their child leaves the house at 18. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And every day this family prays for this, this kid. And every day, not, not, one, not one text, not one, I love you, nothing. There's no phone calls. Six years goes by. Mom and dad pray every day with tears. One day there's a knock at the door. And dad opens the door and there's the son. And the first words out of this kid's lips I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And this kid collapses on the chest of his dad. And the dad turns to go get mom and doesn't realize that rather than follow him into the house, the son is so overwhelmed by his guilt, he falls in onto the floor and he's just weeping. I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry. And mom and dad come out to the entryway and there's their broken child, broken over sin, broken over rebellion. What do those parents do? I know what God does when you and I are broken before him. I know what he does. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. So straight up. How many of you know an idol you need to bring to the Lord this morning? Let's do that. Let's just do that. Let's just pray. Let's just bow our heads. And let's just walk our way through this. Can I walk us through a prayer time together? Would you just bow your head? Close your eyes. He says, submit yourselves, therefore... To God, he gives more grace. He opposes the proud, gives it to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Would you just submit to God right now? A prayer could be like this. Dear Lord, I desire this. Lord, I want this to be my satisfaction. And yet, Lord, I, I see it doesn't satisfy. It cannot satisfy. I submit. Would you just pray that? Would you now pray, Lord, I want to resist the temptation that's going to come with this. Oh, Lord, give me the grace to fill my head with your word. Lord, give me the grace to pursue you, like to draw near to you, knowing that you'll draw near to me. Would you pray that? Would you continue? Lord, now that I can see clearly I want to cleanse my hands of any secret way back to that sin. I want to crush the tunnels, Lord. Help me crush the tunnel. Cleanse my hands, oh Lord, please. Right now you could pray, Lord, I'll go. I'll talk to a friend. I'll involve a friend. Oh Lord, 
Don't let me just go after those idols. Continue, Lord. Get to my heart. Get to my motives. Lord, please do a deep work. Change me. I want to humble myself. I need you and your time to lift me up. I'd love for us to take about a minute here to pray. Be honest, this is going to play for about a minute or so, and you pray.